Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 58, investigation update for the Qantas 747 decompression event of 25 July 2008. In this show, I'll review the progress of the investigation, followed by the discussion of media speculation about the incident. We'll begin with excerpts from a news conference given in Manila on July 27th, two days after the incident, by Australian Transport and Safety Bureau Senior Investigator Neville Blythe, where he stated that the focus of the investigation was a possible aircraft oxygen system malfunction. That will be followed by an extended discussion about the media coverage of the incident with fear flying expert Captain Tom Bunn. We, as I mentioned, sir, the investigation is only today starting to conduct detailed study of the areas. We have conducted an initial examination, um, an overview examination, if you like, of the, of the oxygen equipment, which is in the rear of the forward passenger hold. Um, but in terms of the further investigation, yes, that area, obviously being the area of the rupture, will be subject to, to close scrutiny both in the, pas- in the baggage or freight hold, I should say, and the, mm-hmm. the passenger uh, compartment. There's been, as, you, as you're aware, um, you know, commentary in regard to the, uh, whether this was a security event in respect to a security event, I mean an event caused by an explosive device or the like. At this stage, there is no evidence whatsoever that this is a security-related event. This has been treated as a safety investigation, um, and until such time as any evidence comes to light um, that this was a security-related event, um, the investigation will be conducted um, by the ATSB, the Civil Aviation Authority of the Philippines, um, as a standard safety investigation. We're here with Captain Tom Bunn of SOAR, and we had him uh, on the show a few weeks ago when he talked about fear of flying. And today is the 27th of July 2008, a couple days after there was a Qantas 747 over the South China Sea that had an explosive decompression event, which caused quite a bit of uh, flurry of attention in the news. And as is usually the case after a high-profile event, some of the things said in the media were fairly intelligent. Some of them were decidedly not so intelligent and somewhat misleading and could uh, lead to unwarranted fears on the part of the flying public. But I'd like to turn it over now to you, uh, Captain, and tell us a little bit about what you think uh, happened here. Well, what I first saw in the media uh, was uh, reference to the uh, value jet uh, crash several years ago in which uh, oxygen canisters, which were uh, taken off of an airplane, sat around for a few days. Somebody put them in a cardboard box and threw them in the belly of an airplane. You see, at that time, ValueJet was really an accident looking for a place to happen. The airline had gotten great reviews by Wall Street uh, because they were cutting costs so uh, so greatly. But what they had done was they didn't even, in order to cut costs, they said, we aren't going to carry hazardous cargo. We're just going to have a rule not to do that. So therefore, they didn't have to train anybody, they thought to even recognize what was hazardous cargo. As a result, stuff got put on an airplane, an airplane crashed. So um, the fact that these canisters were taken off an airplane uh, when they're in their normal use in order to produce oxygen in case it's needed on a plane had nothing to do with the oxygen tanks or oxygen bottles, as we usually call them, on the Qantas 747. There's no, there's no connection whatsoever. Just the word somehow caused these reporters to think that there was some similarity. None at all. Now, this was a report based on some of the preliminary uh, research done by the accident investigation. 
this was a report that narrowed down the cause possibly to one of the two uh, pilot oxygen bottles that are in the aircraft. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What they found is that when they looked in the area, there's only one bottle and there's lots of pieces of the other bottle. So obviously it came apart. And there's no indication that this was a deliberate action, that this is something that looks like a, a system malfunction. Yeah, they, the news said that uh, the investigators had taken a look to see if there's any residue of explosives, and there was none. Yeah, when I saw the pictures of the event, what really struck me is that that was not a place that you usually see uh, corrosive failure or failures of the fuselage due to uh, bird strike or anything like that. It was in the, just in front of the right wing route. Yeah, nothing more than a fairing was what popped off. Mm -hmm. But there's a sequence here in which the oxygen bottle exploding then caused that pressurized area in the baggage area, the wall of that to break open. Then air flowed into the area covered by the fairing, which popped the fairing off. Now, some of the reporters that you talked about equating this somehow with value jet. Is this just a, uh, a reflex action of the press? They hear oxygen and they hear air aircraft accident and they think value jet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, what about the, well, have there been some responsible reporting out there, people who are actually level-headed about what had happened and, and talking about the data and the facts of the situation? Well, the interesting thing is the same reporters who gave the factual information in the same articles were giving references to ValueJet and uh, some, I think, Aloha, the, uh, where the fuselage skin peeled back many years ago. There's no relationship. And uh, that's really misleading people. And so I sent out a special email to people in my newsletter that, hey, look, this, this is what happens with the media. Uh, there's no connection between two accidents. But more than that, people on this plane were not in any danger. And this thing that the press called a, a dive was nothing more than, as you know, the procedure that we train for every year in the simulator to descend rapidly, as rapidly as we, as we can do so in a very controlled way, from cruise altitude down to 10 to 14,000 feet where oxygen is needed by the passengers. And just a little bit of background for passengers. The reason, one of the reasons that's so is that the passenger oxygen, the mass that dropped down, they have a limited amount of oxygen, uh, somewhere on the order of 10 to 15 minutes of oxygen flow before they run out. So this procedure is to get down to the level where you don't need supplemental oxygen, but it's a, no, by no means an uncontrolled dive. Uh, like you said, this is a procedure that's practiced. The structure of the aircraft is not stressed anywhere close to its limit. And it's a relatively safe procedure. Nothing. In for fact, it can even it can even be done on the autopilot. So this is not something that, although it might be dramatic for the passenger, obviously many of them would never have had that sort of uh, dramatic, uh, uh, deliberate altitude loss in their careers as a passenger. But again, this is not something that is out of the ordinary. This is something that is designed into every airline. It's part of the procedure of every air. Excuse me, designed into every airliner. It's part of the procedure of every airline out there, and every professional right. pilot knows how to do this. Exactly. And uh, one of the things, too, I think is interesting, Todd, is that uh, there's no panic on the plane. Some people mm -hmm. who had, uh, had uh, cell phones took video. It's available on YouTube already, and it's interesting to see the 
flight attendants after the descent going through the cabin serving drinks uh, people taking video of the in-flight navigation system of their seats to show that the plane's flying along at 10,000 feet so there were no really obvious system malfunctions going on. It was a normal procedure. They were not in crash positions uh, during the descent, nothing like that. And only afterwards, did, when they saw the outside of the aircraft, did they realize what was going on. And by the way, where that event took place, there's no way the flight crew could have looked out of the windows and seen that part of the fuselage, nor could anyone in the passenger cabin seen what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have emailed and said, well, what if there wasn't a, uh airport that they could land at immediately? And the answer to that, in case anybody's interested, is that whenever you plan a flight, you have to ensure that you have adequate fuel to go to an emergency airport at 10,000 feet, at the lower altitude, where it takes up more fuel. Uh, so even when – and I think that's reassuring that – for people to know that we cover these bases on every flight. Every flight has to be planned to have an event like this take place and reach an airport. And in fact, in the United States, um, although this event took place over the ocean, and you might think, well, gosh, it's a long way to any airport over the ocean, that part of the Pacific is not really that bad. But between the West Coast and Hawaii, if you're halfway between the two, uh, you have to go a considerable distance, over a uh, thousand miles, before you find an airport. That's not the case in the South China Sea area. Yeah, but even uh, as you say, on the flight to Hawaii from the West Coast, you have to load fuel to be able to make the flight from the middle, from Midway to right. either the West Coast or to Hawaii at the low altitude. Now, let me back up a little bit. In the interest of full disclosure. I was one of those uh, sources out there that didn't equate the two, but uh, during, equate the two meaning this event and other fuselage events. But what I said uh, in a podcast was, was, this was an event where part of the fuselage came out. And some of the more well-known events were that also happened was the uh, United 811 out of uh, Honolulu, the Aloha Airlines. And uh, actually I put in there Lockerbie saying that after the bomb went off, a fuselage skin started peeling away, and that led eventually to the in-flight breakup. But uh, I was careful not to say that this event was by the same cause. I just said, hey, here's some other fuselage events, because I knew full well that those would be two or three of the biggies that would come into the media's mind after seeing the Qantas event. So I hope I was uh, being somewhat responsible there. But if not, the audience out there Please send me complaints. Yeah, I would even say in regard to that, so that people don't get too involved with the fuselage idea, that this was a fairing which is used to streamline the area between the fuselage and the, and the leading edge of the wing. And the hole that was seen, where you could literally see some baggage uh, in there, there was a, a problem with the, with the skin of the aircraft, with the fairing, but as we yeah. saw... The aircraft was able to fly, land perfectly well, no major system malfunctions. There was no debris spewing out and hitting the engine and fodding out the engine, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, the hole that you're talking about, uh, uh, Todd, seems to me that that's uh, that's the area, or at least one of the areas, or it may be the entire area, I don't know which, but that's an area where... uh, where gases, where air escaping from the pressurized cabin and the pressurized uh, cargo area 
went into that area and popped the fairy. Right. This is a, my period of pure speculation here. But mm-hmm. let's say there was a, a crude oxygen bottle that had a rupture. Well, the question I'd ask myself is, why did it rupture? And if the clues pointed, well, there was this device that was malfunctioned or not uh, adjusted correctly, and my next question would be, why was that? So ultimately, what I'd like to know, uh, is this yeah. something that was largely due to uh, human error or an oversight in the procedure or something that was until now not well understood? Or was there some sort of physical or system malfunction that was either one of those oddball things that aren't looked for, or there was a maintenance procedure that should have caught it but didn't. These are the questions in my mind, and I would hope that the investigation would get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, in order for people to understand what kind of device we're talking about here, if they think about scuba divers, probably either done scuba diving or they've seen scuba divers wearing tanks on their back, that's the kind of device we're talking about exploding. And as a scuba diver, you know, I know that what we generally would do when putting air into a scuba bottle, we put the uh, bottle down into water so that if, if it did fracture, uh, the parts would be, uh, if it came apart, the parts would, the water would slow things down and nobody would get hurt. But any time you go on a dive boat uh, with a scuba tank, they're very careful about placement of those bottles so that they are uh, not uh, knocked over and knock off a valve because the thing would take off like a rocket. Now, on an airplane, but these bottles are fixed, and uh, it may be that what will be done after this is perhaps cover them with Kelvar or some material like that so that they do... This is, of course, the first time I've ever heard this happening, but if it happened again, that it could be contained. Well, let me add something here from the aircraft design perspective. As uh, many of you in the audience know, I was once an engineering Boeing, and I was involved in the 777 development looking especially at the safety aspects of what may happen with various system failures. And one of the core design philosophies was separation of major systems. In other words, you can have a major malfunction, let's say a crew oxygen tank exploding, and it may damage wire bundles, hydraulics, electrics, etc. But there would be enough redundancy in the system where the aircraft would be able to affect a safe flight landing so uh, although I didn't get involved in the design of 747, it was a somewhat older aircraft, that philosophy has been around for a long time. Now, on the investigation side, uh, this occurred near the Philippines, and I'm assuming the Philippine government is leading the investigation. I'm not familiar with their philosophy as far as uh, releasing reports and the like, but we do have involvement from the NTSB in the United States and the equivalent organization in Australia as well as Boeing and Qantas. So, and given the media attention, given the public attention on this, I'm sure there will be something uh, really sooner rather than later about this. Yeah, and and I'm thinking about, uh, if we go back to the movie Rain Man, where uh, Dustin Hoffman's character said he plays like Qantas because Qantas never crashed. He says, you know, they have had a great safety record. Oh, no question. They're going to protect that. The other thing that comes to mind, uh, Todd, and, and this is something that I know that you appreciate, but most people want. Qantas has done about a million flights. And when you consider that these days a good airline will go about five million flights without an accident, the fact that they've done a million flights isn't as impressive necessarily than an airline that's done 
uh, five million flights that had one accident because we don't know what Qantas's performance would be after they've had five times as many flights as they've done so far. And my favorite comparison is to the Southwest Airlines. They've had in excess of 10 million flights and never had an event where a passenger was killed. Now, point of fact, there was an event where passengers set upon another passenger who was acting out of sorts and they killed him in flight because he thought uh, they thought he represented a threat to the aircraft. But there was no passenger killed in an accident. So in a sense, Southwest is Qantas times five or six as far as opportunities for killing passengers but not actually having done so. Well, I think we beat this one uh, over the head quite a bit, and I'd like to get back in touch with you later on, especially if there is a final determination as to what happened, so uh, we can perhaps uh, discuss this more and give the public out there uh, a good perspective on this. But uh, before we go, I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk a couple of minutes about how this might affect people's perception of flying, their fears of getting on an airplane, and what you have to say about uh, that issue. Okay. Okay. Well, Todd, the way that I understand it when dealing with uh, fear of flying, you and I as pilots, uh, when we look at the idea of one crash in five million flights, we think that's pretty good. But a lot of passengers still have a problem with that. They say, but how do I know it's not my flight? So if, if, you, if you took, for example, a, a, a pilot-oriented passenger and you pointed them to various airlines as well, this one is a pretty good airline. It crashes once every million flights. This one has a record of crashing once every five million flights. This one every once every 10 million flights. You and I would say, well, I know which one I prefer to be on, the one that crashes the least. But you see, a person who has fear of flying typically thinks it doesn't matter which plane they get on. If they get on it, it'll crash. It's that focus on that one. No matter whether it's one in a thousand, a million, or a billion, they can focus on that one, and that causes the anxiety. So what I have to do in my work is give them a way that even though they picture this, that it doesn't cause the release of stress hormones. Well, that's a, I'd like to end it there. I think it's a good point to end on. It. And uh, I'd also like to remind those out there, if you are interested in learning more about fear of flying, of course, airsafe.com has some resources, including links to your SOAR organization. And if you can give us a good uh, a good URL they can go visit if they want to have some more information from your organization. Yeah, our uh, URL is uh, fearofflying.com. Uh, as you can tell, we were the first on the Internet with that kind of a, a URL. I've been working on this for 28 years, so I'm sure that if anybody has trouble with flying, we've got the resources to take care of it for them. I'd like to thank my guest today, Captain Tom Bunn of SOAR Incorporated. For more information about the fear of flying, including links to courses taught by Captain Bunn, please visit fear.airsafe.org. Once again, that address is fear.airsafe.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.